Monitor Monday is recorded before a live online audience. Live from the studios of Rack Monitor, this is Monitor Monday for February 19th, 2024. Here's today's rundown. Artificial intelligence. Will it creep into electronic health records? Will it be used to document patient visits? Today, we'll examine AI's promises for the future and its ethical implications. Senior healthcare consultant Sharon Easterling reports. We will also hear from healthcare attorney Nicole Emanuel. Matthew Walbright, healthcare attorney David Glazer, and Dr. Ronald Hirsch. Now here's the publisher of Rack Monitor and the host of Monitor Monday, Chuck Buck. As we come on the air this morning, we're monitoring an escalating situation involving drug manufacturer and a pharmacy benefit managers. The issue, the discontinued use of a popular children's asthma inhaler. The children are caught in the middle. We have a great deal of healthcare news to report, and so we begin this morning with Dr. Ronald Hershey. He's making his Monday rounds here on Monitor Monday. Monday Rounds is sponsored by R1 Physician Advisory Solutions. Here now making his Monday rounds is Dr. Ronald Hirsch. Well, good morning, all. I've spoken in the past about the new proposed appeal process for patients whose status has changed from inpatient to outpatient. When new rules are proposed, I like to browse the submitted comments to get a feel for the sentiment of the community. In each case, there are very good comments submitted that ask very astute questions and other comments that actually show how people really feel. And this proposed rule is no different. So far, CMS has only posted 15 comments. And four of those were from some guy named Ronald Hirsch, who seems to have nothing else to do but flood CMS with questions. Now, of the others, several again discussed the problem with the three-day rule for SNF access and that patients whose status has changed lose SNF access and request that CMS get rid of that obsolete rule. Another comment came from someone who was upset that outpatients get charged for their self-administered medications. And all of you have heard it from me. If a hospital is charging their patients for those medications, that's on the hospital. Hospitals don't have to charge for those medicines, so don't do it. There was also a comment that the change from inpatient to outpatient shouldn't happen because it results in higher costs for that patient. And of course, all of you know I've talked about this ad nauseum, and it's simply not true. In almost all cases, inpatient costs more. And as usual, there's one comment that really stood out, and let me read part of it. This is from the patient. I have been victimized by a situation wherein I was led to believe that my Medicare Part A would apply to my hospitalization. I first arrived when my bowel became obstructed and I would not pass food. It became very serious over the night of the 23rd. And on the 24th, I was rushed to the hospital by ambulance with extreme pain. I was immediately admitted in emergency, vomited violently, and administered IV, given numerous scans, x-rays, etc. I was asked whether I had Part A, and when I said yes, they said they were going to admit me into the hospital as an inpatient. I trusted them in this regard. I stayed overnight and spent a day in the hospital, leaving again at night around 11 p.m. on the 25th. I had no notion that if I stayed there one more hour, perhaps my status would change. 
I was under the full impression that I would be covered by my Medicare Part A. It was only later that I got a letter dated the 27th telling me that despite my inpatient status and all I had been told, I was going to be denied Part A status. I was given no phone number or recourse to appeal what was clearly an unfair situation. I am entitled to Medicare as a senior citizen of the United States. This unilateral, unappealable decision will cost me at least $2,000 extra and needs to be corrected. I not only wish comment herein, but wish to see this situation corrected. That's the end. Now, interestingly, he attached the letter he received from the hospital, which was a very nice, compliant, self-denial notice from the hospital. And the letter ends with, please call the care management office listed below if you have any questions or concerns regarding this change. Now, that's great, except there was no phone number anywhere to be found on the letter. Now, will this new process appeal for this patient? As proposed, because the patient didn't transfer to a nursing home, unless he has no Part B, he has no recourse, even with the new rule. But does he have a case? Well, I would certainly love to see his medical records because a bowel obstruction, in most cases, can have a two midnight expectation, and his discharge at 11 p.m. certainly looks like it may be an unexpected rapid recovery. But of course, the biggest question to this whole rule is whether CMS will answer any of the questions from that Hirsch guy. Chuck, back to you. Thank you, Dr. Hirsch. That was the vice president of R1 RCM, Ronald Hirsch, MD. Dr. Hirsch is making his Monday rounds here on Monitor Monday. Here now with the Monitor Monday Rack Report, it's healthcare attorney Nicole Emanuel. And good morning, Nicole. Hello, and happy Rack Monitor Monday. Today, I want to talk about gaining information and becoming knowledgeable about how the most funded government agency, CMS, uses tax dollars. We know that CMS pays a lot of tax dollars to vendors or contractors who conduct RAC, UPIC, TPE, and other audits. The Medicare and Medicaid programs cover more than 40% of insured U.S. population. As of 2023, 65,636,490 Americans are enrolled in Medicare. This means roughly 25%-ish of all 258.3 million U.S. adults are enrolled in Medicare. In 2022, taxpayers spent $1.8 trillion on these programs. Now, most academic studies and industry reports on these programs are possible because researchers had access to data collected by CMS. Now, CMS does monopolize this data and now is limiting its access. Have you ever wondered how the statistics that I just spoke about came to be public knowledge? For example, say a taxpayer wants the statistics on UPIC audits. They want to know how many UPIC audits take place, the result of each audit, and whether the UPIC audits are targeted to a certain specialty. Normally, anyone could request data from CMS. But on Monday, CMS announced that it will terminate existing institutional access to Medicare and Medicaid data, effective August 19, 2024. All future access must take place through its chronic conditions warehouse 
Virtual Research Data Center, CCWVRDC. And many complain that this is too expensive and it has too many restrictions. Now, regardless of public feedback, CMS is going to start implementing these mandates within six months. Basically, this policy makes it so that no one can request data in the form of CMS research identical files sent to them. If you want information from CMS, you must go to CMS and use their system. And I'm sorry, I thought CMS was a governmental agency. Have they heard of FOIA? The Freedom of Information Act is a federal statute that allows individuals to request access to federal agency records. Now, there are nine exceptions to the Freedom of Information Act. A FOIA request can be made for any agency record except the following. The nine exceptions are the following. So one exception protects from disclosure information that has been deemed classified under criteria established by an executive order to be kept secret in the interest of national defense or foreign policy and is, in fact, properly classified pursuant to such executive order. Number two, protects records related solely to the internal personnel rules and practices of an agency. Number three, protects information exempted from release by statute. Number four, protects trade secrets and commercial or financial information which could harm the competitive posture or business interests of a company. Five, protects the integrity of the deliberative or policy-making processes within the agency by exempting the mandatory disclosure opinion, conclusions, and recommendations included within interagency or intra-agency memoranda or letters. Six, protects information that would constitute a clearly unwarranted invasion of personal privacy of the individuals involved. Seven, protects records or information compiled for law enforcement purposes that the release could be expected to interfere with enforcement proceedings or would deprive a person of the right to a fair trial. Eight, protects information that is contained in or related to examination, operating, or conduction of records prepared by or on behalf of for the use of any agency. And finally, protects geographical and geophysical information and data, including maps concerning wells. My point in enumerating these nine exceptions is to illustrate how vaguely written these exceptions are. One could argue almost any piece of information fits into one of those nine exceptions. And that is how CMS protects its information. I do not like the idea of government shielding information. The government should be transparent. We should be able to request how many RAC or UPIC audits occurred last year and whether certain healthcare specialties are being targeted. If you agree with me, you have until March 29th, 2024 to comment. Back to you, Chuck. Thanks, Nicole, very much. I was healthcare attorney Nicole Emanuel. Nicole is a partner at the law firm of Nelson Mullins. And coming up, let's say at about uh, 12 minutes after the hour in your time zone, you're going to hear from healthcare attorney David Glazer, Matthew Albright, and Sharon Easterling, who's standing by to report our lead story. It's President's Day. It's February the 19th. You're listening to the live edition of Monitor Monday. Stand by.
Are you ready to elevate your role as a physician advisor and safeguard the future of healthcare? If so, the National Physician Advisor Conference is calling your name. Brought to you by the American College of Physician Advisors, NPAC 2024 is a must-attend conference. It's April 15th through the 18th at Lowe's Coronado Bay Resort in Coronado Island, San Diego, California. Join live or in person. Envision three and a half days immersed in groundbreaking insights, cutting-edge ideas, phenomenal speakers, and networking opportunities that redefine the ordinary. Register now to secure your spot by visiting acpaadvisors.com. That's acpaadvisors.com. You don't need to be an ACPA member to attend, but members enjoy discounted rates and many other exclusive benefits. Conference registration closes April 12th. Register today for NPAC 2024 and be part of shaping the future of healthcare. Here now with the Modern Money Risky Business Report is healthcare attorney David Glazer. And David, as I say every Monday morning about the same time, what could be risky this morning? Well, Chuck, it's focusing on appearances rather than substance. So this week, well, I guess last week, one of my clients got a letter from a state attorney general. The letter requested information about two of the organization's former employees. When the client forwarded the letter to me, I suggested that I'd call its author and confirm that my client wasn't a target of the investigation. Now, my client was nervous. Won't having a lawyer call on my behalf make me look guilty? She asked. Don't only guilty people need lawyers. Now, there's a bunch to unpack there. I'll start with an adage you may well have heard. When a lawyer represents themselves, they have a fool for a client. Experience has taught that even lawyers benefit from bringing in another pair of eyes to handle problems. If lawyers shouldn't represent themselves, it's extra clear that non-lawyers shouldn't. And there are many reasons for this. First, you don't know what you don't know. A fresh pair of eyes can offer insight. But there are other benefits to having a lawyer make the contact. If you call an investigator, nothing will stop them from starting to interrogate you. They can ask literally anything they want. Now, if you're worried about how it's gonna look if you have a lawyer make the call on your behalf, imagine how it'll feel if you try to shut down their questions mid-call when you suddenly regret not having engaged counsel. Worse yet, let's say you make some factual mistake during the call, some innocent mistake because it's earlier investigation. Now you're on the hook for making a false statement. So the lawyer provides an inherent buffer and lowers your risk out of the gate. Second, I wouldn't tie yourself in knots trying to determine whether a particular course of action looks guilty or not. After all, agents are well aware of the fact that people think it makes them look bad to get a lawyer. The result could be some sort of psychological catch-22. Guilty people don't retain counsel for fear of looking guilty. So you may arouse suspicion by not engaging counsel. Don't get trapped in these mind games about appearances. Focus on the substance. But I really want to emphasize the strongest argument for engaging counsel. If you've ever watched a cop show or read a newspaper article about investigations, you know the length that government agents will go to to try to keep someone from engaging counsel. There is a reason for that. People who have counsel are less likely to get convicted. Agents don't want people to get lawyers because it makes their work more difficult. 
And that should tell you all you need to know. Now, this point is illustrated brilliantly by a Gary Larson cartoon. Uh, Daniel, if you'll call that up, if you look at the screen, you'll see a man talking to a shark in a boat. The shark says, uh, I'll tell my people you're going to stay in the boat, but they're not going to like it. Now, it's absolutely true that government agents will be annoyed at you for getting counsel. But the reason they're annoyed is that their job will be harder. The far side offers the perfect analogy. Would you rather jump in the water and have happy sharks or agents in the analogy, or stay in the boat, that is, engage counsel, and annoy them? Personally, I'm staying in the boat. Finally, the letter ends with the statement, please note that the data regarding the investigations is confidential, and I request that you treat this information accordingly. Just a reminder, as we talked about last month, that while the state may be required to keep the information confidential, you are not. The government's request is just that, a request. It's important to distinguish requests from requirements. So Chuck, I should be using a dead president song, or I think last year I used Lincoln Park. But instead, I'm gonna start at the beginning with Genesis, the band, not the book. When the government asks, who done it? And you're trying to figure out how to say, I didn't, I didn't do it. Use competent counsel to present the facts and the law and heed Gary Larson and stay in the boat. Back to you. Thanks, David, very much. That was healthcare attorney David Glazer. David is a shareholder of the law firm of Fredrickson and Byron in downtown Minneapolis. Up next, Matthew Albright with the Monitor Monday legislative update. The legislative update is sponsored by Zealous. Zealous is modernizing the healthcare financial experience by bridging the gaps and aligning interests across payers, providers, and healthcare consumers. Here now is Matthew Albright. Chuck, we've been reporting on the hero's journey of the No Surprises Act, or NSA, since its inception in 2022. Last week, CMS released its first comprehensive summary of the disputes that have gone through the NSA's negotiation and dispute resolution process. Now, over the past year or so, CMS summaries and reports on the NSA, these are congressionally required reports, they've been just like one to three page overviews. They've essentially been CMS confessionals that describe the government as being completely overwhelmed by these disputes. So like a teenager whose homework has been eaten by his dog, these early reports basically say, hey, uh, can we turn this in sometimes later? But with last week's report, CMS has done its homework, giving us nine separate documents of data covering the first half of 2023, including four spreadsheets with 12 to 27 megabytes worth of data apiece and with party and payment details on each of the nearly 300,000 disputes that went through the process. So let's hit some highlights. And again, this data is only for the first six months of 2023. First, the number of disputes over just this six-month period was 13 times greater than CMS initially estimated they would see for a whole year. That's like in a job where you expected 100 emails a day, you started to see 2,600 a day. The majority of disputes were initiated by a small group of providers. The top three initiating providers 
represented about 60% of all disputes. Next, providers won 77% of the disputes. And lastly, the winning offer in those disputes was higher than the qualifying payment amount or QPA. It was higher than that QPA in over 80% of the disputes. So why is this report important? First, it's really the first in-depth look at the consequences of the No Surprises Act. As we reported earlier this month, AHIP, the American Health Plans, came out with a report that stated that the No Surprises Act had prevented 10 million patients from getting balanced billed. So it looks like the patients are benefiting from the act. However, CMS's most recent report gives us some insight into how out-of-network emergency rooms, physicians, and air ambulance providers have fared in terms of reimbursement after the act. The report appears to be showing that they are winning these disputes by a large margin, and in the large majority of cases, their final payments are greater than the health plan's in-network rates. Now, there's always caveats. The numbers show that just there's just a small few provider organizations that are actually using the government's dispute resolution process, despite the numbers, right? We don't get any real insight into the great majority of out-of-network providers, especially the small ones. Interestingly, however, we may have more insight if the government's proposed improvements to the system are implemented. So one of the proposed changes is to manage the negotiation process that comes just before the dispute resolution process. So if we start to see the numbers and results of the providers who come to some agreement on their out-of-network rates, we'll begin to see a, a bigger picture. The report also demonstrates that at least as of the first half of 2023, these IDR disputes continue to increase. The number of disputes at the beginning of 2023 were nearly 25% higher than at the end of 2022. In fact, a GAO report has estimated that nearly two-thirds of NSA disputes remain unresolved as of December 2023. In the summary of CMS's most recent report, the government recognized that the process is still overwhelmed and still far from perfect. They're working on it, CMS basically says. And then, you know, like the kid whose homework was eaten, but then he knocks it out of the park with an amazing final report, it does look like CMS is working on it. Back to you, Chuck. <laughs> Thanks, Matthew, very much. That was Matthew Albright. Matthew is the Chief Legislative Affairs Analyst. Zealous. And coming up next, artificial intelligence in healthcare, its promise and its presence in electronic health records. Standing by to report a lead story this morning, Sharon Eastley. When it comes to federal auditors, the concern is not if you'll get audited, but when. Just knowing that audit targets have been identified is good news. But here's even better news. During an upcoming Rack Monitor webcast, Learn about the top federal audits and how to protect your facility from audits. Learn to address risks and enhance your facility's compliance. Join this exclusive Rack Monitor webcast, Top 10 Compliance Risk Areas for Hospitals and Physicians in 2024, Get Ahead of Federal Audit Targets. The webcast is this Thursday, February 22nd at 1.30 p.m. Eastern. Learn about the high-risk federal audit targets. Gain insight into compliance requirements and learn how to avoid what federal auditors are targeting. Register now at the Rack University Bookstore. 
As you heard us mention at the top of the broadcast, artificial intelligence is making itself present in healthcare, the electronic health record, for example. Today, in an exclusive report, Senior Healthcare Consultant Sharon Easterling explores artificial intelligence in healthcare, its promise, and its potential liabilities. Good morning, Sharon. Welcome back to the broadcast. Hi, Chuck, and Monitor Monday Friday family. So glad to be here with you today. And welcome to our segment where we're going to talk a little bit about the role of generative AI in healthcare. And we're going to focus on its integration into the electronic health record and the pivotal steps that health systems must take to ensure regulatory compliance. You know, contemplate and get prepared to review your processes as we discuss this today at a high level and how a generative impact will impact your facility. What its potential is to revolutionize EHR through personalized learning and its ability to bridge existing knowledge gaps in healthcare. Generative AI is at the forefront of healthcare innovation and is offering the promise of more personalized, efficient, and effective patient care. By training AI models on vast data sets of patient information, these intelligent systems can generate detailed visit notes from patient-provider conversations and identify critical gaps in medical documentation. The ambient listening technology can automatically generate SOAP subjective objective assessment and plan notes from conversations in real time, and also questions can be presented to the providers. These AI models can also identify social determinants of health and visits notes, such as housing and income, which can have crucial, which are crucial factors affecting our health outcomes. The overreaching thought is that this capability not only enhances the accuracy and completeness of EHRs, but also streamlines the documentation process, allowing healthcare providers to focus more on patient care rather than administrative tasks. However, the integration of generative AI into healthcare systems is not without its challenges. As we embrace the potential of AI to improve EHR systems and CDI processes, it's crucial to consider the regulatory landscape that governs healthcare documentation, ensuring that AI-driven innovations comply with standards set by regulatory bodies is paramount to maintaining the integrity and legality of the medical record. This includes adherence to privacy laws like HIPAA, which maintains the protection of patient information and compliance with guidelines from organizations such as AHIMA and ACTIS, especially in the context of CDI and the query process. Now remember the the query process is a critical component of CDI and benefits significantly from AI capabilities. AI can automate the identification of documentation discrepancies and generate precise queries, facilitating accurate coding and billing. However, these AI-generated queries must be non-leading, clinically relevant, evidence-based to comply with established query guidelines. And of course, are they really called queries? And Do we have any real guidance on that yet? But this process will ensure that clinical documentation accuracy reflects the patient's clinical picture and supports patient care and billing processes. Currently, 
we are waiting further guidance on this issue. As we navigate the integration of AI into healthcare, it's essential to balance the enthusiasm for AI's potential with a cautious approach to its implementation. Skepticism arises around issues of data privacy, the potential for bias in AI algorithms, and the integrity of AI-generated documentation. Health systems leveraging generative AI must prioritize robust data governance frameworks, invest in AI literacy among their staff, and foster a culture of innovation that is aligned with ethical standards and regulatory compliance. Looking ahead, the next steps for health systems include a strategic and thoughtful approach to AI integration. Providers should establish a comprehensive governance strategy that includes oversight of AI applications, ensuring these technologies align with ethical standards and regulatory requirements. This strategy should include continuous monitoring and evaluation of AI systems to safeguard patient data privacy, maintain documentation integrity, and uphold the quality of patient care, not to mention not to drive our providers out of their mind. This also includes rigorous testing and validation of AI technologies within clinical settings, collaboration with AI developers to tailor solutions to healthcare needs, and advocacy for clear regulatory guidelines that support ethical AI use in healthcare. Remember, the journey of integrating generative AI into healthcare particularly within EHR and CDI processes, presents a landscape filled with both promise and challenges. And by maintaining your focus on compliance and ethics, we will get there. Back to you, Chuck. Thanks, Sharon, very much. I'm a senior healthcare consultant, Sharon Easterling. And folks, that is going to be a wrap for this live edition of Monitor Money. And I want to thank you very much for being with us today. And a special thank you to our panelists, Matthew Albright, Nicole Emanuel, David Glazer, Dr. Ronald Hirsch, and Sharon Eastling, who reported our lead story. And one more thing before we go. Hey, please join me tomorrow for Talk to Tuesday. That's when Dr. Ron Hirsch is going to be on the broadcast. That's where we're going to talk about his instructions for the safe handling of code G2211. Until tomorrow, I'm Chuck Buck reporting for Rack Monitor and Monitor Monday. Have a great week, everybody. Monitor Monday is a presentation of Rack Monitor.